Let us open our Bibles back up to Acts chapter 13 and consider the rest of that chapter before we come to the Lord's Supper. Acts chapter 13. The persecution that Saul of Tarsus was greatly involved in, in Acts chapters 6 and 7 and 8, led teachers from that church that was in Jerusalem to be sent abroad as they tried to escape the heat of the persecution. They went as far as Antioch of Syria. There a church was founded. There were a great multitude that was saved there. It was a large church. had a number of teachers in it. We come to Acts 13 where two of those teachers named Paul and Barnabas are sent forth by the Holy Ghost to uh, go preach to the Gentiles for the first time in the most definite way. Now, Peter had been a speaker to the house of Cornelius, but that was an exception. The rule was yet to be established by Paul, who was the apostle of the Gentiles. And Acts 13 tells us about that event. And this is great world history. When the Bible, by the Holy Spirit, tells us about the great mystery of godliness, the word mystery does not mean it's a mystery to us when it's used in the Bible. It means that it is something that doesn't come by natural revelation or natural understanding. It's something the rest of the world does not understand. It's something hidden to them, secret to us, revealed to us by the Scriptures. And the Spirit of God. When the Bible describes the great mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3.16, it gives six characteristics of the great mystery of godliness. And two of those are that Jesus Christ was preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world. That was a momentous event. Those of you that have been to an American college or university... They make you waste $100 on some ridiculous novel about history that they call a history book. There's never been a history book written by men that is accurate or true. Because it's always a novel about history from their perspective. They're always looking at history through their eyesight. And so when we read these books that we're forced to read, when you get an education from the world in order for us to function in this world, they never deal with the real events. The real events are found in 1 Timothy 3.16. The real events that Jesus Christ, God, was manifest in the flesh, justified the Spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed down in the world, and received up into glory. That is what ought to be taught in history classes. Acts, the Acts of the Apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, are more important than the ridiculous little historical events that you are forced to memorize and regurgitate. Thankfully, we forget most of them because they're utterly worthless to our lives. You know, memorize them, cram, regurgitate, get an A, keep your GPA up, forget about it. Go home, read the Bible, and fill your mind and heart with the truth of God's Word. I don't know if there was a Christopher Columbus or not. And you know what? I don't care if there was or there was not. I'm here by the grace of God and what I am and where I came from. And what happened 500 years ago is all in the hands of God. I don't know if he came on three boats called the Santa Maria, the Nina, and the Pinto Bean or not. Doesn't matter. What matters is Acts of the Apostles. 
God would tell us this is the great mystery of godliness. He was preached unto the Gentiles and believed that in the world. The apostles of Jesus Christ, ignorant fishermen that they were from Galilee, turned the world upside down. Do you know why the Japanese, who don't have the least knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, observe a seven-day week? Because Genesis tells them to. There is nothing in the movement of the earth or the heavenly bodies that would tell us that a seven-day week is appropriate. Now, we know how long a day should be because the sun dictates 24 hours. We know how long a month should be because the lunar cycle dictates. We know how long a year should be, 365 and a quarter days, because the earth and the sun's relationship dictates it so. But when it comes to a week, it's by the revelation of God. The whole world observes a week to give credence to the fact that the Bible is true. God created the heavens and the earth in six days. That's a history book that I want to read right here. I get so sick of reading novels. You've never read a real history book in your entire life. It's always through the eyes of the writer. This is his story. That's what real history is. His story of his dealings with the nations. And Paul jumped right into that subject, didn't he? His first sentence of content was... In verse 17, the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. And he went through a quick history of Israel from the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, down through Egypt, the wanderings in the wilderness, taking the land of Canaan and destroying seven nations that were greater and mightier than they, the granting of judges for 450 years, two kings named Saul and David, and reminded them that God had said some pretty impressive things about David, and that of that man's seed, God had raised up a Savior named Jesus. That's in verse 23. He reminds them of John the Baptist. He reminds what ha- them what happened to Jesus of Nazareth in Jerusalem. He then tells them that God raised him from the dead. And that there are witnesses of the fact. I tell you the truth. Barnabas and, Saul, Barnabas and I have seen him. There are others that came from Galilee that are in Judea right now that have seen him. He was seen above... By above 500 brethren at one time, he showed himself alive for many days, 40 of them, by many infallible proofs. Jesus is alive. And if we go back to our Old Testament scriptures, this is Paul speaking to his audience. Men and brethren, and those among you who fear God, the scriptures tell us that this was the case. Psalm 2, described as resurrection. Isaiah 55, described as resurrection. Psalm 16, described as resurrection. And though David wrote those words and wrote them in the first person as if they were happening to him, we know better, don't we, audience? We know that David, after he served his generation, died, was buried, and put in a sepulcher and is with us to this day. But God raised up David's son, Jesus of Nazareth, and he is the fulfillment of those prophecies. Verse 38, be it known unto you, therefore... Because of all that evidence that I've raised in this short sermon, be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. I am here today, Paul is saying, with information about Jesus of Nazareth being the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah of God sent to redeem us from our sins. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, Shiloh of Judah... The son of David, 
all those fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And to you is preached the forgiveness of sins. You sit in this synagogue every Sabbath day and you have the scriptures read to you. You read about animal sacrifices. You read about God clothing our first parents with the skins of animals. You read about Solomon offering so much for the dedication of his temple. You read about the Day of Atonement that had to occur every year because sin was never atoned for. That's why they had to repeat it. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. I am preaching about one Savior sent from God that Isaiah 53 describes as bearing our iniquities and being wounded for our transgressions, and that he justified us by his knowledge. And these Jews and Gentiles are sitting there hearing the precious gospel, the good news, the glad tidings of Jesus Christ for the first time in clarity and thoroughness. Paul had said in verse 32, And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled them in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be it known unto you. I've said some of these things before, but I want to bring your minds back. He has already explained that all the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, the most part, there were a few exceptions like Nicodemus, they that dwell at Jerusalem, this is verse 27, and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. The Jewish leadership, though it spent its life in the scriptures, they tied it to their foreheads, they wore it on their shoulders, they had articles on their clothing to express how much they loved the word of God. Every Sabbath day it was read, but they did not have a heart for it. They did not understand it. God had closed up their eyes, stopped up their ears, and hardened their hearts so that they would not, could not believe it and be converted. Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, is all about that point. John chapter 12, the last five verses describe that point. Paul's going to explain it to the Jewish leadership in the city of Rome in Acts chapter 28 in this book. They were hardened to the gospel because they had been rebellious. And so God judged them like he judged Pharaoh and hardened his heart. Be it known unto you, therefore, you Jews and Gentiles in Antioch of Pisidia, by this message and glad tidings that I'm preaching to you, can make a quantum leap of knowledge over your religious leaders in Jerusalem. Because it is through this man that is preached the forgiveness of sin. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only way that we can have the forgiveness of sins. And he has secured it for us by his death, which the Old Testament spoke of, and all things that were written of him were fulfilled. Verse 39. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things, from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. This form of religion that you have trusted to this point in time is truly the religion of God. It's his old covenant. It's the deal that he made with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. Do this and live, but no one can do it. Therefore, you could not be justified. You cannot stand legally pure, righteous, and holy before God by the Old Testament because no one is capable of believing it 
and obeying it. From which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. In this 38th and 39th verses, the Apostle Paul is taking apart the Old Testament religion that they had trusted in until this assembly. You, couldn't, you cannot be justified by trusting in that law. That law describes perfection and no man is able to keep it except the Lord Jesus Christ. You could never be justified. To be justified is to stand before God and to be declared innocent and free from all your sins. And then on top of that, to be declared to have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As I have explained to you before, some define justification as just as if I'd never sinned. But that's only half of justification. Justification includes the putting away of all our sins, so it is as if we had never sinned. But justification is also to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, so it is as if we had lived as perfectly as Jesus of Nazareth himself. Because he was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took our sins and gave us his righteousness. What a glorious thing called justification. And you could never get that from the law of Moses. You can get it only through the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is through him that is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And so we have the first half of verse 39. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things. Verse 38 has already declared that it is through Jesus Christ the forgiveness of sins comes. And then 39 says, by him... We are justified from all things which we could not be by the law of Moses. And how do you lay claim to that justification yourself? How do you know it's yours? How do you lay hold of it? How do you lay hold of eternal life as it's described in the Bible? By him, all that believe are justified from all things, all sins, all condemnation, we are justified by Him, by Jesus Christ. That's why the words, by Him, open up the verse. Are justified from all things. And how do we know it? All that believe. By Him, all that believe are justified. Believe is a present tense verb. Are justified is a perfect tense verb in a passive voice explaining something that is already true and in existence. Our justification occurred in the mind of God before the world began. Because known unto God are all His works from the foundation of the world. Right. We were chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. And why are we chosen in Him before the world began? That we should be holy and without blame. If you're without blame, are you justified? Absolutely. That's Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. In the mind of God... Because it is an act of his mind to decree to justify and to put us in the justifier, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a sense we were justified before the world began. I have 20 authors in my outline that you can go look at. We have the wonderful advantage of having a library at the end of everyone's mouse. And you can go look at 20 authors that have taught that over the years. This is not some novel doctrine. This is a doctrine where God is in charge of salvation. And he chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began and predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, Ephesians 1.5. Justification is in the mind of God before the world began. 
It occurred at the cross in the payment that was made to satisfy the justice of God. True justification, literal, legal, forensic justification occurs when God has the penalty for sin satisfied so that he can declare one guiltless and righteous at his tribunal. And the Lord Jesus Christ did that when he died on the cross and rose again for our justification. Romans 4.25 We are then born again in time, at which time the Lord gives us a holy and righteous nature called the new man. We don't ask for it because we don't want it. When you are in the flesh only and just have an old man, you don't care about the things of God. You hate God. You're a rebel against Him. But God regenerates us and gives us a new man that the Bible says is created in righteousness and true holiness. We could call that vital justification in that we are made righteous. The Bible doesn't describe it as justification. The Bible describes it as regeneration and vital sanctification. But then the gospel comes to us. And when we hear the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, which message is despised by the flesh, no man in the flesh, no natural man will ever believe on Jesus Christ or humble himself to him because Jesus Christ is only discerned, known, believed, and obeyed spiritually. But when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe it, we lay hold of justification for ourselves. We understand that our sins are forgiven by the grace of God through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. We're already justified eternally. We're already justified legally. We already have a righteous nature. Our standing before God doesn't change a whit when we believe. What does change when we believe? We know that we're justified. We're assured of our justification. We now have the evidence that we're justified. Jesus justified us. He paid for our sins on the cross 2,000 years ago. When we believe, we don't add to His work. When we believe, we don't make His work effectual in heaven. God has already accepted His work, and He said His work was finished 2,000 years ago. When we believe, we lay hold of it for our own conscience. And that's what it's described as in Hebrews chapter 9. We come under the assurance of our salvation. We now know how it was provided, and we have the evidence of it. But faith by itself is not enough. You know, the whole world today is all you got to do is believe. All you got to do is accept Jesus. That's never taught in the Bible. Nowhere is it taught in the Bible that you need to accept Jesus. Do you know what's taught in the Bible? That God has to accept us in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. God has made us acceptable through the Beloved. The Beloved is the Lord Jesus Christ. God has accepted His elect because Jesus Christ died for them. The issue of salvation is not you accepting something. It's God accepting us because of something. And that something is the Lord Jesus Christ's death for us. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. If you've read the whole chapter of Acts 13, is there any other way to know that what I've just explained about verse 39 is true? That God chose in Christ Jesus before the world began and already has appointed and predestinated them to justification long before they ever believe? Do we know that from the context? What verse? Acts 13, 48. Look at it. 
And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So when we look at verse 39, and by him all that believe are justified, what group of people are we talking about that are already justified? Those ordained to eternal life by the appointment of God. It's called predestination in the Bible, in Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 1. They're the ones that believe. No one else will ever believe. If God hadn't ordained us to eternal life and regenerated us, we would never believe. There wouldn't be a believer on earth. Because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And until we're made spiritual, we will not receive the things of the Spirit of God, which is the gospel. Verses 38 and 39, By him all that believe are justified from all things. To men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. To you is the word of this salvation sent. He didn't say citizens of Antioch of Pisidia and all surrounding areas. You women in the brothel, you men in the prisons, to you is the word of this salvation sent. He said, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. That's why he went to synagogues. Then he has this warning. What an invitation. It's a declaration in verses 38 and 39. These are the facts. I've declared to you knowledge that doesn't exist in Jerusalem among the rulers of your religion. If you believe it, you are justified from all things which the law of Moses can't get done. But I want to warn you about something while I'm telling you this. Verse 40, beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. And he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5. Behold, ye despisers and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. The Apostle Paul came as an eyewitness. Barnabas came with him as a second eyewitness. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. The two of them testified that there is another band back in Judea that has seen the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And we preach to you that Jesus of Nazareth, who went about doing good, healing men of their diseases and casting out devils, was buried by the Romans and the Jews, but rose from the dead because God raised him up. But I want to remind you while I'm telling you these facts, that there is also a prophecy in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 5 that says, Behold, you despisers, you're going to wonder at the mighty works that are being done in Judea, and you're going to perish under the judgment of God, because I'm going to work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe. There isn't any evangelistic effort that you can put forth that will ever cause a man to believe that is not ordained to eternal life. In Luke chapter 16, in the exchange between the rich man and Lazarus, when the rich man begged for Lazarus, Abraham, to send Lazarus back to keep his five brothers from coming there, Abraham's answer was, they have the scriptures. And the rich man said, they don't like to go to church. They sleep in church. They daydream in church. But if one was sent back to them from the dead, 
like Lazarus, they would believe. And Abraham said they had the Scriptures. If they don't believe the Scriptures, they wouldn't believe if someone was sent back from the dead. If we were to bring someone back from the dead, it cannot make a spiritual man out of a natural man. The only, the only ones that can be affected by the truth of the gospel of the grace of God, no matter what efforts are made, are those that are already born again and saved, justified, predestinated, and glorified as far as God's concerned. All the work of salvation is done by the grace of God. But the warning here is, behold and beware that there's a prophecy still hanging out there that I'm going to work a work in your day and a man's going to declare it to you and you're not going to believe it. Now remember what he had said back here in verse 32. We declare unto you glad tidings. Do you know that Paul is fulfilling Habakkuk 1.5 right here on the spot? We declare unto you glad tidings, but God said, a man's going to come and declare the truth to you and you're going to despise it. And you're going to wonder about it and you're going to perish because you won't believe it. Verse 42, when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, they got up at that point. They, that was their scripture that Paul was pounding them with. <laughs> Paul turned their own scriptures on them. And when the Jews were gone to the synagogue, do you know what? There was a group of 40 Gentiles sitting in the back four rows, segregated, despised as strangers from the covenants of promise and strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. They were the, look at what it says. And when the Gentiles were gone to the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. They, were, they had just heard something very good. The law of Moses can't justify anyone. But any man that believes on Jesus Christ is already justified. It, our, all that believe are justified from all things. And that through this man is preached the forgiveness of sins. Can we hear this again next Sabbath? Gerald and I were talking at the break time. The two of us sitting in the back row, if we'd have heard a message, we hope to God we would have. In our present state, we would. To sit in that back row and hear a sermon like this, we'd have looked at each other and elbowed each other. Did you just hear what he said? Look at all all the Jews are leaving. All the Jews are leaving. Let's get that man. Let's hear this sermon. Another sermon like this next Sabbath day. This is what I want to hear. That the fulfillment of it is in Jesus of Nazareth. And we are justified just like they are. And we can prove it by believing this gospel record that God's declared about his son. Verse 43. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. There's nothing here about making a decision for Jesus. There's an order to believe, to show that you're justified, and then there is that message that ought to be continually harped on, and that is to continue in the grace of God. We do not believe in decisional regeneration. We do not believe in decisional justification. We believe that we are justified by works, as far as evidence goes, in the same way that we're justified by faith. Because James chapter 2 teaches us, ye see then how that by works a man is justified. And when we read that, we know that, just, that our works are not the meritorious or the condition of our justification, but the evidence and the proof. Faith and works are both the evidence and proof of justification, not the conditions or merits for it. The condition and merit for it 
Is the Lord Jesus Christ coming and laying down his life and being buried and rising again from the dead? That is the meritorious condition and instrument of justification. Our faith lays hold of it for our own conscience. It is called subjective justification by some who want to understand that it's our heart laying hold of it. And the Bible uses those words to lay hold of eternal life. 1 Timothy 6.12 and 1 Timothy 6.18 and 19 tell us that. But look at the emphasis there in verse 43, and this is what preachers have to do. They can't tell someone, because you've accepted Jesus, you're guaranteed you're going to heaven. That isn't the guarantee of going to heaven. Election is the guarantee of going to heaven. And as far as you're concerned, the guarantee of going to heaven is adding to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, patience. And to patience, temperance. And to temperance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. Where are those eight things found? Second Peter chapter 1, where Peter said, You can make your calling and election sure by diligently doing these things. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. That is the guarantee of salvation when you live a righteous life. The world today takes a little momentary emotional decision for Jesus and tells them eternal life is guaranteed. Write the date in the flyleaf of your Bible. But the apostles would say, continue in the grace of God. That's the only way. And it is so frustrating to, min- to ministers with a conscience that preach that false gospel because they see so many make a decision for Jesus and none of them live for him. Studies have been done on those who have accepted Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade. There are less than 2% of them that are even going to church. Forget living a holy life. It doesn't work. God has to change a person's heart and their lives. So notice the emphasis of Paul's preaching. He persuaded them, Paul and Barnabas persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44 tells us the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. What happened in the meantime? One week's time. These Gentiles must have been pretty excited. They went home and told their spouses, children, grandparents, neighbors, colleagues at work. And almost the whole city comes out. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. They were envious of Jesus and now they're envious of Paul and Barnabas' gospel success with the Gentiles and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Jesus said about the Jews of his generation, they compass land and sea to make one more proselyte for their religion. The Jews love to convert a Gentile. And if you... The Jews loved to convert a Gentile... Because when they could get a Gentile to undergo that minor surgery that I mentioned in the first assembly, it was one great religious coup for them. One great big accomplishment for them. And so when they saw Paul and Barnabas coming along, who weren't teaching circumcision at all, but just free forgiveness and justification through Christ Jesus... They envied that religion, they envied Paul and Barnabas, and they envied the success that the Holy Spirit was giving them. So they contradicted and blasphemed the things that Paul was preaching. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold. The Holy Spirit has filled these two men, and they look at the situation. They've got these Jews envious, 
blaspheming and contradicting the truth of God's word and the historical events that had taken place in Judea. And they said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. Because the gospel was first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles by Jesus Christ's order. But seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Now how excited would you be, Gerald, if we were in that assembly when Paul and Barnabas said, we're through with you Jews, you envious, contradicting, blaspheming enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've condemned yourselves and damned your own souls by showing that you are unworthy of God's gift of everlasting life. You've shown that you're reprobates. We turn to the Gentiles. I want you to see a passage that I referred to. We're about done. But go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It's one I mentioned in the first assembly, but it's an important one. It's an important one. Today, today, while we hear the glad tidings about the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of us hears, receives, and believes that message, or hears it and neglects it. And the difference proves a whole lot about you. Second Corinthians 2, I mentioned this, but I want you to see it. Verse 14 of Second Corinthians 2. Now thanks be unto God. This is Paul describing his ministry. Second Corinthians 2, 14. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savour of his knowledge by us in every place. Do you know what Paul is saying in that verse? When I preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ, I always win. Always. Because I create a sweet-smelling odor that goes up to heaven, to God, for the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 15, 4. We are unto God a sweet savour of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. Did you know that preaching the gospel to someone that's going to hell is a sweet savour of Christ to God in heaven? Because they prove, and we would prove as well, if it weren't for the grace of God, that we do not deserve everlasting life by rejecting the message God has given of His Son. We are unto God a sweet savour of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one... We are the savour of death unto death. Those are reprobates. Someone dead in trespasses and sins, we preach the gospel to them, and they rebel against it, they reject it, they hate us, and they try to kill us for preaching the truth to them. And they contradict and blaspheme, like Acts chapter 13. To the other, the savour of life unto life. We preach the gospel to another one that's already got eternal life. See, it's life unto life. They have the life inside. We preach the truth. They're glad and they glorify the word of the Lord. Just like Acts 13 describes. So we are a sweet smell in the nostrils of God by preaching Jesus Christ. Because we make known the truth about Jesus Christ. Those that are dead prove their death. Those that are alive prove their life. So we always triumph. Who is sufficient for these things? God makes all the difference in the world. All I do is present the gospel and I always triumph. 
And then look what he says in 17. This is a, I love this. This is the truth of the Bible. You're reading ahead of me. Men today, men today, when they think about the effect of verses 15 and 16, that they preach the truth of Christ, only a few believe and most reject, do you know what they do? Modify the message. Modify the message, increase the entertainment, raise the decibel level of the music in order to get more to so-called believe. Look what Paul did. Did Paul modify his message? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. What is the context right here? That there would be a temptation to corrupt the word of God, to modify the message, to get more to believe. For we are not as many that were corrupting the word of God in Paul's day. There were so many false teachers. We are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. All we do is present the plain, unvarnished, scriptural, historical truth about Jesus Christ. And what a man does with that declares the condition of his soul. I'm not angry, except at false doctrine. Do you know what, I, do you know what we have laying before us right now? You want to lay hold of eternal life? Then fall at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and kiss the Son. Lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. That's why Paul said, Beware and behold, ye despisers and wonder and perish. The message of Jesus Christ is a two-edged sword. It's a stone. If we fall on him in repentance, we are broken for the better. If he falls on us, we are ground to powder. That's Matthew twenty-one forty-three. I think I know what I want to do today. And I have it inside of me, and I haven't always had it inside of me. And that's a new man that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. I will happily kiss his feet and be his bond slave through eternity. Anyone else believe that? Acts 13. That's how you judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. No one's worthy of everlasting life. But you prove yourself a reprobate when you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, neglect it, and don't live in love and service to Jesus Christ. Don't tell us you love Jesus unless you're keeping all of his commandments because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He it is that keepeth my commandments, loveth me. Verse 47, they explain a little further. For so hath the Lord commanded us. Oh, the Gentiles are getting even more excited, Gerald. The Lord's commanded us to make this difference, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. God has commanded Barnabas and me to come and preach the gospel to you Gentiles. And we show you the light of immortality and life that Jesus Christ has secured for us. When it says the word light... It means it brings to knowledge and understanding and makes clear and open the immortality and eternal life that Jesus Christ secured. Listen to a cross-reference. 2 Timothy 1.10. I'm going to get verse 9. Listen with me. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling. Speaking of God. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us, in Christ Jesus, 
before the world began, but is now made manifest, brought to light, clear, made manifest, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel doesn't bring life and immortality. The gospel brings life and immortality to light. These men already had it. They were already ordained to eternal life. But the gospel brought it to light and showed them that there's no salvation or justification or forgiveness of sins in the law of Moses. It's in this man that I preach unto you, Christ Jesus. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation of the ends of the earth. And that salvation there is the practical salvation of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and being converted from error to the truth. It's what salvation Paul prayed for in Romans chapter 10 when he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He wasn't worried about getting them saved from the lake of fire to eternal heaven because that had already been determined by the grace of God. Didn't he teach that in Romans 8? Foreknown, predestinated, justified, called, and glorified. Hadn't he already taught it? In Romans chapter 9, hadn't he already taught that God had made a distinction in the nation of Israel and some were vessels of mercy and some were not? Some were vessels of wrath. So when he comes to chapter 10, we understand that he's praying for the elect of God. Those are the ones Paul cared about because that's what he said in 2 Timothy 2.10. I want you established in this truth by the grace of God. So when he says salvation, he's talking about the salvation from error and ignorance, the truth of the gospel and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because in Romans 10, when he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He goes on to say this about them. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, are going about to establish their own righteousness. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Do you know, do you know how much you save a person? that was keep trying to keep the law of Moses. Have you ever read the 917 commandments? Has anybody written them out and put them on their bedroom wall? There's only 917 to keep. And if you've got a blend on today, you're already sinning, so just forget it. You can't be justified. If you've got blended material on your body, it's already over. You're on your way to the lake of fire. And if you husbands get near your wives more than five or six days out of the month, you're in trouble too. You know what the Old Testament has to say. It has so many binding rules, nobody can keep it. But do you know if a person was trusting that in order for the forgiveness of sins, justification, and to get to heaven, do you know what kind of a wonderful message it is? Do you know what kind of a salvation it is to have brought to light that Jesus of Nazareth has already finished all that for you? That's what verse 47, that's the sense of verse 47 if you compare it with the rest of Scripture. There are so many other salvation verses I could use to show you that the word salvation is used in a practical way like that. But we've done that before under the five phases of salvation. Verse 48. Now, Gerald and I are in the back row, and you are all with us. We're elbowing each other, looking at each other, because he's just opened up the whole thing to us. Because he said the ends of the earth. We know we weren't stock of Abraham. We weren't of the stock of Abraham, but from the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. They praised God for the message that they had just heard from the Lord's two apostles, Paul and Barnabas. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Those that believed the true message of Jesus Christ 
And in that belief of Jesus Christ, they repent of their sins and are changed creatures. You can know something about them, that they were ordained to eternal life. If you modify the message of Jesus Christ, you can get a whole lot more to believe, but there's no evidence that they were ordained to eternal life. And that's why there are so many evangelistic disappointments and failures, because they modify the message, and then this verse doesn't apply. You have got to present forth the Lord Jesus Christ without corruption, as Paul said he did in 2 Corinthians 2.17 that we read a few minutes ago. They were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. They were so excited about what they had heard. You know, the gospel is a wonderful message of glad tidings of good things. The gospel, the gospel that God is trying to save the entire planet and all 80 billion people that have lived since Adam and Eve, but will miserably fail in 79 billion of them, that Jesus Christ died for all 80 billion of them, but 79 billion of them will pay for their own sins in hell, that God loved them all, the ones in hell, as much as the ones in heaven, that the Holy Spirit has done an equal amount of work on the ones in hell as the ones in heaven, that is not glad tidings of good things. That is a miserable failure on the part of God to save those He intended to save. And the difference becomes all my difference. The only difference between heaven and hell is something I do, according to that scheme. The scheme of the Bible is the difference is all what God does through Jesus Christ. And I lay hold of it by faith and good works to know that it applies to me by making my calling and election sure. And they glorified the word of the Lord to hear such a free message. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. They went wild. Like the Gadarene who was sent home, he said, Lord, can I go with you, please, as you take that ship back across the Sea of Galilee? And Jesus said, no, go home and tell your friends what great things the Lord hath done for thee. And do you know what he did? He went home and published it in his whole city. He had quite a testimony, didn't he? But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. Can you believe it? Two men that are preaching the truth about the God of heaven, the creator of us all, and his son Jesus Christ, who is the savior of his people. He pre- they preach the truth. They don't take any money. They work day and night making tents to provide their own way, and yet they're expelled out of their coasts. By what kind of people? The devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city. There is peer pressure and there is superior pressure. There is peer pressure by your equals and then they will get society to move against you by getting educated, socially adept, popular leaders to legislate against Christianity. It's a work of the devil. It occurred here in the city of Antioch of Pisidia. They were expelled out of their coasts. But they followed the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. I wonder when the last time Billy Graham tried that, to go outside of a city and to shake off his feet, the dust of his feet. Do you know what Jesus Christ said when a minister of the gospel does that against the city? It will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that city. That is the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Let's love him today. Did you love singing about our great Redeemer? All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown Him Lord of all. 
Is He Lord of all of your life? Can, are you continuing in the grace of God? Are you glad and glorifying the word of the Lord like these brethren did? And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. And so Acts chapter 13 ends. Are you full of joy? If you're not full of joy, then the world has stolen it from you. If you're a child of God. And we need to get it back. We repent of letting the things of this world destroy our joy. And we ask the Lord to renew the joy by His Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Being our Savior, our brother, our friend, our high priest, the great shepherd of the sheep. The one that brought about the everlasting covenant. The bishop of our souls. The apostle of our profession. Jesus is everything. And so we come toward his table in a way that he's asked us to remember him until he comes. Bless the preaching of his word.